Welcome to the Bearing Witness Project, hosted by Gabe's Taurus and Michael Zip. The Bearing Witness Project exists to equip communities to recognize and understand the harm of religious and spiritual trauma and to take compassionate action to prevent and heal. On this podcast, we will be telling stories of harm and discussing research that demonstrate the severity of its impact. We are aware that this content may feel painful for some to hear, especially for individuals who have experienced these events firsthand. If this is true, we highly encourage that you listen to the rest of the episode with a friend or listen to this episode at a later time. That being said, we also attempt to engage with one another and these topics with a sense of hope and warmth. The views expressed by the hosts and the guests of this podcast are representative of their own personal viewpoints and not of the Bearing Witness Project as a whole and the organizations we are affiliated with. Thank you for joining us again during part two of our first discussion. In this episode, we'll be talking about the spectrum of trauma and harm, how we define trauma clinically, and how it relates to the religious context. So, Michael, Hmm. Because we want to put a lot of value into definitions, I would like to know from your clinical experience and even from your personal experience, what is trauma? That is (laughs) a big one. Okay. Uh, So clinically, uh, I have up here the definition of trauma by SAMHSA, which is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They kind of provide a lot of the uh, principles around trauma-informed care that a lot of organizations and clinicians use. So I think it's helpful to bring this into it. Mm-hmm. But the term trauma refers to experiences that cause intense physical and psychological stress reactions. Mm-hmm. It can refer to a single event, multiple events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically and emotionally harmful or threatening that it has lasting adverse effects on the individual's mm-hmm. physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. So that's the clinical definition. And I, I have some issues with that definition just because... Thank you. Yes. <laughs> yes. There, there are a couple of things here. And I think it's important to name, too, the differences in the mm-hmm. lenses we're using. So when SAMHSA is using this, they're very much using a psychological lens, like purely yeah. clinical psychology lens. Yeah. I'm I'm trained as a social worker, so I tend to think about things more systematically and systemically and socially speaking. So what I would say for me, what trauma is, is um, a wounding that happens as a result of harm and violence. And I think trauma reactions, traumatic stress reactions that we're going to talk about in the next couple episodes about what happens to your brain and body, I honestly think those are normal responses to abnormal events Mm. and i think it's really important to keep and that's not something i've coined myself that's something we kind of use in the trauma world as well but i think it's really important to to not try and um, blame Mm -hmm. the person who's been traumatized by saying and and some therapies even do this i was just sitting in a class and we talked about something called cognitive processing therapy which is considered a best practice um, for PTSD mm-hmm. with veterans and sexual violence survivors. And, and for some people, where, what I'm saying, not saying here is that it doesn't work. No, for some people it does bring healing and it's really helpful. But mm-hmm. the language that they use specifically is um, around maladaptive coping to um, an event. 
And so what that does, it puts all the responsibility of the traumatic response Mm -hmm. in the individual versus Mm -hmm. looking at the larger reason that the trauma happened in the first place and focusing on preventing that harm from happening in the first place. I use the trauma-informed language a lot, but something I wish and hope to do in my own my own career and my own work is to also make sure that we're not just trauma-informed, but we're also violence-informed. Yeah. That we're not just looking at the person's, quote, maladaptive reactions to something which I don't really believe are maladaptive, um, even though neurobiologically they could justify saying that, right? It's all about the lenses we're using. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, I think it's really important that we're violence-informed and saying, okay, what are the good right. reasons that someone is reacting in this way? Right. So we're not just addressing the effects, but also the sources and also the the cultures that which perpetuate or that which start um, these, like you mentioned, like these abnormal events that which um, caused the normal reactions. I think that's really, really valuable in this conversation because um, mm-hmm. why do we have to mitigate when we can start by preventing and keep it from happening. That's good. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Could you talk to us a little bit about the spectrum of harm and trauma? Because I think the the word yeah. trauma, people kind of throw that around nowadays a lot. Yeah. They'll be Which like, really, oh, I, w- yeah. I was stuck in traffic. It was so, so that traumatic. Was traumatizing. Yeah. Or yeah. the or sale me. wasn't as... Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah the sale wasn't as good. Yeah. Or... <laughs> Uh, they said it was 50%, but it was yeah. up to 50%. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Never going to exactly. do that again. <laughs> so traumatizing. So we, we use this yeah. language. So if sure. you could talk about what what is the spectrum of harm that we're talking about, um, and just so people understand where they kind of fit um, mm-hmm. when, when they're listening. Right. Um, I would like to begin first by saying something about the working definitions or the descriptions of which we, I, we attempt to around trauma and that is and there's a part of me that's like while it's great to have a point of reference to consult whenever we've experienced something that's heartbreaking or something that's really harmful or violent um it's great to have something like that but if if we are to stick to a particular or to one definition in a way like i'm i'm thankful that we don't have like a universal one because what if i experienced something that was deeply harmful and then i consult this definition and i did not fit the criteria but then in my own particularity and in my own context it was actually very very harmful because i have a very located and contextualized upbringing childhood types of relationships and that has accompanied the ways in which I was harmed, whether that may be in the form of bullying or an accident that I had in a car or whatnot. My responses to certain events or certain things that my, um, that my senses get in touch with, it would respond differently from how your senses or how your body would respond to certain things. To some extent, I believe that no one in this world is exempt from a traumatic experience. And I say that because we live in a world of human beings where we make mistakes and we have the same desires for a connection and that there are 
events in our lives where that desire was betrayed, where we are left hungry of such connection. And so we try to get by and we try to survive. And in a lot of ways, we have been disappointed because of not having these legitimate needs met. And so I feel like every person has that experience. But I also wish not to trivialize. I think what's really valuable in this type of work is to be able to acknowledge the complexity and to let go of labeling right, wrong, good or bad in the experience. I think that leads really well into kind of how I've been thinking about religious and spiritual trauma specifically. And so we combine those two definitions we just made, or discussions. I don't really think we landed on a specific definition, um, but it, combining those two explorations together on religious and spiritual mm -hmm. trauma. And, and so I'm thinking about it in two ways, and based on the conversations I've had with people, even since starting this project a couple weeks ago mm -hmm. and having people reach out to me and talk about immediately. I asked for some stories and within an hour I had six stories of people that were trying mm -hmm. to reach out and share their story. And so just hearing their stories, I'm seeing two trends that are happening, two types of religious and spiritual trauma. And this is yeah. by all means not expert knowledge. This is not comprehensive. This is just two trends that I'm seeing in the stories I'm hearing. First is trauma that happens externally from religious community. So let's say, for example, domestic violence or abuse, childhood abuse or um, bullying in school or something like that. Something traumatic happens outside and you bring it into the safety or supposed safety of the religious community mm. and they either minimize it, right? Say, oh, that's not a big deal. Or they say, for example, in the domestic violence situation, and this has happened plenty of times, of uh, a woman comes forward and say, hey, my husband um, is, is hurting me. And they'll use theology to say, you need to submit to your husband, right? Or you, so they're using, it's external trauma that is brought into the church and is then yeah. minimized or explained away because it's too complicated. Mm -hmm and too messy mm -hmm. to deal with. Mm -hmm. Or to move forward to, I, I think it's so common amongst churches or the language around church to move quickly to, oh, face every circumstance with joy mm -hmm. or to be grateful mm -hmm. or Jesus died for us. Mm -hmm. or, or forgive. We are chosen. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So that immediately dismisses the existing wounds mm -hmm. That are literally on yeah. um, the victim's yep. body and soul and experience. Yep. Yep. So so that's the first first way we're seeing religious and spiritual trauma. The second way is internally in the church when mm -hmm. theological or scriptural constructs themselves are that which are traumatizing to people. And so this would be, for example, people who are sexual and gender minorities. Say, for example, a young girl she's 13 who realizes she's attracted to the same sex and mm -hmm. the the theologies that she's hearing the homophobia she's hearing even apart from directed at her just the theological construct she's hearing those are mm -hmm. acting in a way where she has to dissociate from her body and her actual experience 
because mm-hmm. it is so hurtful and confusing to her because she doesn't have the mm-hmm. conceptual resources to say no okay how do i how do i wrestle with god with this how do i wrestle with scripture with this so instead the theology is used either explicitly or implicitly um, or intentionally or non-intentionally and, and it's used to again minimize something and or completely erase a part of someone yeah. because it doesn't fit into the larger construct or goal right. that they're trying to hold to can i share a story yeah go ahead <laughs> so i had mentioned earlier that i am an artist and under that uh, broad title, <laughs> I do music, and I did start playing and singing at church. Um, I was part of this church when I was 17 or 18, and one of the rules of this uh, <laughs> of I like this how you say that. Is, uh, rules. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> I was so stressed out. So um, one of the rules that they had is as long as you're in college, you can't really date anyone until you graduate or something. Hmm. Oh, yeah. It's mm -hmm. they think that relation romantic relationships are a distraction to both your uh, ministry work and also your academic work, which is your calling while you're in college. So I... um, I was part of the worship team, and those were one of the rules that were reinf- that were enforced. Like, you can't date anyone until you graduate college. Then, of course, I met someone, and then... Because um, it happens. We tried to... <laughs> I know, because you have feelings, and you can be responsible about it, and you can... Sorry, we're not bitter. <laughs> we're... No. <laughs> it's the 18-year-old in me yes. that is showing yes. up right yes, now, exactly. which... Happens to all of us. We have multiple <laughs> self states. We, I, I honor that, and yes. I welcome you, eighteen year old Gabe's, yes. <laughs> who's showing up right now. But, um, but of course, like it, it didn't last because we have friends. Like our closest friends are also in church, and so of course that message got to the worship team leader and the pastor. Eventually, I had to be. I had to stop leading worship, which. I thought was really, really sad. I mean, so of course, like the young, the younger Gabe's was conflicted and confused. I, that was when I started to, to kind of like dismiss feelings, to feel a lot of shame around desire. And I think that is a pretty common response that we all have whenever we, we like someone or like something. So I think in terms of this theme, having a system or having a set of rules, it's just so, so rigid. And what happens is that an institution or a system exists for people. That has always been the case for communities. But I feel like what is happening is that it is reversed, that we begin to submit to the system, the regulations, instead of actually honoring its original intent, which has always been for us. It's always been a human tuned. Um, It's always been designed for our own connection and for our own, our own ways ways of trying to locate the very desires that make us who we are. 
And so in that process, I was confused because I love worship leading, but I also love this person. So does this, this mean that I'm a little less faithful? Does that mean that I am not a daughter of Jesus or of God or whatnot? Um, and I think this reinforces the homogenizing culture that honestly, like white evangelicalism is really known for. And so it it fails to honor complexity, context, and diversity. Mm. It confuses harmony with homogeneity. Ooh. Ooh, say more and, about that. <laughs> um, well, I can understand why um, there is a need for order. That is for sure. Like there is a, this is why we need containment in the, uh, the mm-hmm. therapeutic mm-hmm. room. But I feel like to some people, they would also confuse disorder with diversity. It's always the, th- uh, the question around what is the, what is the difference between uniformity and unity? We always want to be united. We always want to be on the same page. We always want harmony and, and stuff like that. But I feel like a lack of imagination or a deficient idea of what it means to be free has been inhibiting us from actually knowing what it means to be a faith community. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like... And be connected to the divine. Right. And sure. I can I can understand my own tendency that whenever I am in the presence of difference, um, I freak out or I get really anxious. Like, how do I engage with this person? Um, where the ways in which I perceive the world or perceive human beings is different. And and, yeah, it's different from how they perceive the world. So my tendency is to want to be in control and to want to tidy up and Mm -hmm. to want to understand. And because I fail to understand, I tend to project my own shame for not understanding and I tend to blame and I tend to tell, impose upon them what I think is right. Because I have done a lot of, of the quote-unquote sacrificing in order to be part of this community. So I right. Right. would want to see that in somebody else because, because, I would, because I have a failure to understand. Yeah, what I hear you, what I hear gleaning out of what you're saying in both in terms of religion and spirituality and trauma on our larger conversation on trauma is the impact of binary thinking. Basically this idea in the clinical world that we have this, the DSM, the, our diagnostic manual, Mm -hmm. and you either have the symptoms or you don't. Mm -hmm. And that the only true trauma disorder, quote unquote, that we have in the diagnostic manual is PTSD. What we know is that a vast majority of people who are actually traumatized and who we know are traumatized don't fit the criteria and the symptomology of PTSD. Simultaneously, what I'm hearing on the religion and spirituality end is this binary, again, this black and white thinking of like you either fit this or you don't. And there's no room for complexity. There's no room for messiness. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I'm interested in, in the future episodes to explore a little bit more about that intersection between those two things that are so strictly binary and how that impacts us. Yeah. 
mentioned previously that I am um, somewhat relieved that we don't have like a universal definition of trauma because what if somebody does encounter or experience a really traumatic experience and once that they consult that definition, they don't find themselves fitting into that category. Um, like their felt experience does not um, match. So what if they would immediately dismiss it as a traumatic experience and decide not to tend to the symptoms or to any manifestation or any effects that occur after such an event or the series of events. How I think of religious and spiritual trauma is that it is the violation that takes place when members or leaders of the faith community use the text, use the the practices, and even use God's name um, to incorporate rules and um, or to enforce rules and impose messages upon congregants um, or upon members for their own benefit to maintain their power or to simply get what they want at the expense of someone's well-being, their safety, and their genuine willingness to serve and praise the subject or object of their devotion. And the confusion takes place when this um, this violation of power, this violation of well-being, is disguised as martyrdom, as sanctification, as a way to bear your cross, as a way to sacrifice yourself just because Jesus has sacrificed for you, or as a way to practice discipline. And the violation continues when the the rest of the members of the faith community or the congregants are complicit to these harmful power structures, um, that they don't do anything about it. So the confusion, the ambiguity piles on and or adds on to the experience of the victim or the survivor. And they start saying that, oh, this is just a normal way of being a member or of being part of, of God's kingdom or of, of this tradition or whatnot. So I think that's really valuable to address. What we've been hearing throughout this entire episode is uh, us, I think what's going out is us coming from our own experience. And we also want to name that for ourselves, that both of us are coming from a Christian context. The goal of the Bearing Witness Project, however, we don't consider ourselves a Christian podcast. We consider ourselves a podcast speaking on this topic of religious and spiritual trauma and providing advocacy. And my my personal dream, if someone would ask me my personal dream with the Bearing Witness Project, is that we're interfaith or multi-faith. So that's just something to name for people to know that um, we we are coming from a certain context and locatedness. And simultaneously, we're also inviting a larger conversation in here. But there's no way for us to speak into someone else's experience, right? That's That's not... We just can't do that. Um, we don't know what those experiences are. And for our next few episodes, we will be inviting special guests in the clinical world or in the world of theology or both to explore the themes around how trauma affects the body, the mind, the brain, and even um, inviting folks to delve into the conversation around trauma in light of one's racial background, one's social context explore power dynamics, 
and a lot of other themes that would relate to religious and spiritual trauma. Gabes, I am so excited for this. Um, I think today hopefully provided a little bit of a groundwork and the baseline for what we hope people will get out of the Bearing Witness project. I think for me, Bearing Witness, if we're looking at our actual title, right, we haven't talked about this phrase Bearing Witness, but to me, Bearing Witness is being able to sit with someone's story and the complexity that it is and to hold that with them and then be moved in some way. Um, and, and so I, I hope that today's conversation started shedding light on what bearing witness can look like with survivors of religious and spiritual trauma. And we probably said things that you, the listener, were like, whoa, I completely disagree. And we uh, agree. <laughs> like we completely embrace that complexity that we're all coming to this conversation from different backgrounds and different experiences and um, different ideas of what religious and spiritual trauma is or what faith is or what religion is. And, and we invite that conversation while simultaneously also making sure that we're, we're staying true to bearing witness, staying true to holding the complexity with survivors. I think my hope as well for this project is to give folks an imagination as to how um, trauma actually works oftentimes. And I think I kind of hinted on it earlier that trauma was like a one-time event or that people should get over it or whatnot. But one of the things that I had learned trauma to be, according to Shelley Rambo, is that it is a suffering that does not go away and that um, trauma is like the event, the traumatic event itself is just as painful as the effects that follow after it. The hope that I have for you is to be able to grow in compassion towards um, yourself and to those who have suffered from this type of harm and to see how you can witness and help them or yourself name the depth of what has happened and to not be naive that this is continuously happening to our communities and to find the ways to heal the things that continue to remain in our bodies and in our minds and in our spirituality. So yeah, I have a lot of hope for us in this conversation. Yeah, and to see how it would be materialized, how it will be embodied, even to us as hosts with our own dealings with <laughs> with being TZKs and with being <laughs> coming from yeah faith traditions that are just so interesting <laughs> but but yeah yeah I'm hopeful for what comes and we're excited to hear your story thank you for letting us see you and it is already a bold bold step step to be listening to us at this point of the episode Thank you so much for listening to the Bearing Witness Project. Please reach out to us if you have any questions or comments. Many thanks to all our supporters, and a special shout out to Corey Pegg for all of his resources and help in this process. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow us on social media, share with friends and family, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Much love, y'all. See you next time.